became a Christian, one of the biggest um, challenges I found was the idea, or at least I thought it was the idea, that you had to be happy all the time. That you had to be constantly smiling and that no matter what was going on in life, you sort of, you were almost letting God down a bit if you weren't giving the appearance of being in this state of just constant joy. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong in that and we should try and, and, and be joyful. We should try and be happy. We should try and count our blessings and remember what we have from God. But I'd struggle with the verse which tells us to be joyful always, to pray continually, to give thanks in all circumstances. It seemed to me that that's kind of, um, that's an absolute. Be joyful always means never stop being joyful. Absolute. Pray continually. If you do something continually, you never stop. You never have a little break. You never have a gap. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Well, if that's God's will, I used to think, then why? Why is it that sometimes I don't feel particularly joyful? In fact, sometimes I feel positively miserable. There's plenty of times where I, I think, how can I give thanks for these circumstances? This is terrible. The car's broken down, I'm ten miles from home, it's raining. How can I give thanks for this? And I struggled with that. Because there was this, this absolute, this, this requirement. I think it's fair to say, if we're completely honest with ourselves, that we probably all struggle with that. If you're sitting there thinking, well, I don't, then I cannot tell you how happy I am for you because you must live a life of utter bliss. Fantastic. That is brilliant. But you see, as I grew in my Christian faith, I came to be fascinated by certain stories in the Bible where you can take a teaching like that verse we've just looked at and see it applied. I've always been interested in the minor characters in the Bible because so often a character um, doesn't necessarily have a, a, a leading role to play in a story, but when you stop and zone in and focus on, on what we're told about them, we can learn a huge amount. So this morning we're going to be looking um, at Genesis, starting in verse 27. Now I won't, um, if you'd like to jump in Bibles then please feel free, but we're sort of going to be jumping around um, Genesis from uh, chapter 27 up to uh, chapter 33. So we, there's not sort of one specific passage, we're not going to read the whole lot, don't worry, we'll be here till, um, till midnight. But it's a story of, of Jacob. Jacob's not a minor character, Jacob is quite a major character. And many of you will be familiar with the story of how Jacob tricks his father into receiving a blessing. Now, Jacob has an older brother, Esau, and he is 
being the older brother, he's um, expecting to receive the blessing from his father, the, the blessing that kind of passes on the, um, the, the, the status as the head of the family. Esau is married to a Hittite woman, uh, a non-Israelite, a non-Jew. And this was detestable in the eyes of Jacob and Esau's mother. And so she engineers this, um, engineers this, this series of events where um, basically uh, Jacob takes advantage of the fact that his father's eyesight is failing and that he's not quite um, able to identify the difference between his two sons. Um, and uh, he, he dresses up and he puts a wolf skin around him because we, we're told that... Um, uh, there's a the great verse in the Bible which tells us that um, Jacob was a bald man and that Esau was hairy. Um, <laughs> so uh, they get around that by putting an animal skin around him. And he goes and sits before his father and he tricks his father into receiving a blessing. And when the older brother returns, the deceit is discovered. And so... Esau holds a grudge against his brother Jacob. He's devastated that he hasn't received this blessing, that it's been given um, through deceit to his younger brother Jacob. And so Jacob hears of his brother getting pretty angry about this. And in fact, we're told in Genesis, um, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessings his father had given him. He said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. So Jacob, Jacob hears that when, as, soon as, his, as soon as their father dies, his brother's going to kill him. And so he does a sensible thing and he leaves. He, go, he, he goes off to, um, to live elsewhere, which I think is a, <laughs> that's probably the response I'd give if I heard someone was going to try and kill me. Um, Rebecca is Jacob's mother. She says to him, your brother Esau is consoling himself with the thought of killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. So Jacob flees. He flees off to this, um, this relative. And Rebecca says, take a wife for yourself there in chapter 28 from among the daughters of, La- of, of Laban. He's your mother's brother. So take a wife. So keeping it within the family, it will still be a Jewish wife, something which Jacob's mother approves of. He says, go. Uh, she says, go. And so Jacob goes. And we're told a bit about his journey in chapter 28. And in chapter 29, we're told um, that Jacob continued on his journey and he came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the field with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll away the stone from the well's mouth and water the sheep then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob gets to this well. And while he's there, he he meets some other shepherds and he asks them if he's in the right place. He says, my brothers, where are you from? And they say, we're from Haran. He says to them, do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him. Is he well? Yes, he is. Here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. We're told when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, 
and Laban's sheep, he went over, rolled away the stone from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. So he's got to this land, he's carried out the the instruction that his mother's given him um, to flee, to go to this um, effectively sort of a a safe house, um, his mother's brother, and to take a wife there. Now, when um, when he first gets to the well, he's just concerned with making sure he's in the right place. He speaks to the shepherds and they confirm he's in the right place. He then has the stroke of luck that, that, um, that uh, Rachel, the daughter, is coming over at that exact time. She goes and tells her father and as soon as he hears the news, he hurries out to meet Jacob and he welcomes him. He welcomes him saying, you are my own flesh and blood. Now then, you might think, Come on, Tom, what's the point? What are you getting to? What I'm getting to is a relatively minor character. That's the sort of the backstory of how we come to be where we are now. Jacob had stayed with the family for a whole month when Laban said to him, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. So you've been working, with, working for me for a month, um, I should pay you. What do you want? Name your price. Verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the old one was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel, who we've already met by the well. Chapter 29, verse 17. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. So there are these two daughters, Leah and Rachel. Now, just a quick aside, when I was in a sixth form, um, uh, there's a a group of friends who I still keep in touch with now, there's four of us, and um, uh, one was, he was a ladies' man. He was quite a successful ladies' man. He, he, he knew a lot of ladies. And um, uh, he changed girlfriends on quite a regular basis. I met my wife Jo when we were, we were 15. So through, all through sixth form, we were together. I, I, was, I was not a lady... Well, I was a, a one ladies' man, I suppose. Um, uh, but my, my friend, who I, I, I won't name him in case he ever tunes in and listens to the recording of the service, he'll be mortified. But um, he, he was a ladies' man. And um, uh, he often would come along to the pub and say, oh, so-and-so's coming along. Who's she? Oh, she's my girlfriend. What about the one you bought last week? Yeah, that didn't work. Oh, okay. And then the following week, there'd be another one. And it was, it was a very regular turnover. He, he seemed, to, seemed to have, um, I don't know if that's a gift or a curse, but whatever it is, he had it. And... Uh, we would, um, the three of us who were sort of um, observed his exploits came up with ways of trying to describe um, his partner of the time um, without being rude, without being unflattering because sometimes um, he would sort of say, oh, my, my, my new girlfriend, she's stunning, she, you know, you, you want to see her, you want to see her and he'd build up our expectations and then we'd, we'd meet her and we'd think, well, she's, she's lovely, yeah, but she's not the supermodel you, you sort of led us to believe. Um, and so we'd come out with certain comments and one of them was, um, 
another mate would say, oh, Tom, have you seen Sansa's new girlfriend? Um, yeah, I have. Oh, I haven't yet. What's she like? And we come out with these little phrases, and one of them was, if they weren't quite what he'd cracked them up to be, you'd say, she's got nice eyes. Sometimes, if they really weren't, you'd say, she's got two eyes. (laughs) You see, in this verse here, there's a similar sort of um, message conveyed. We've got these two, two daughters, and we're told Leah had weak eyes. Now, it's interesting, in the, in the um, NIV translation, it says weak eyes. In other translations, it says beautiful eyes, which is obviously a very different way of putting it. But most translations um, do suggest she's got either weak eyes or delicate eyes or poor eyes or fragile eyes. There's this comment which um, it, it suggests that the only feature that she has which is worth pointing out is her eyes and even that is not particularly complimentary. Poor old Leah is the older sister of Rachel who we're told was lovely in form and beautiful. It's easy to skip over that verse but basically what we're being told in Genesis is Rachel was really attractive. Leah, not so much. This is not very flattering. And unsurprisingly, we're told in verse 18, Jacob was in love with Rachel and he says to her father, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban says, fair enough, it's better that I give her to you than some other man, stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. What an appropriate thing on Valentine's Day, or the week of Valentine's Day. He worked for seven years, but it felt like just a few days because he loved her so much. He was so enthralled with her beauty. At the end of the seven years, Jacob says, give me my wife, my time is completed and I want to lie with her. I've waited seven years. So all the people are brought together and a feast is thrown, a big celebration. We're, we're not quite told um, how weddings were conducted in those days, whether it was simply a, a feast to recognise that um, these, these two people have committed to each other or whether there was a, a marriage ritual. But we're certainly told it was a big celebration, a feast was thrown. But when evening came, Laban, the, the father of Rachel and Leah, took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob and Jacob lay with her. Again, we have to kind of read between the lines here because I can tell the difference between Joe, my wife, and her sister. I've got a friend who's married to twins. Uh, sorry, he's married to... His wife is a twin. <laughs> His wife has a twin sister and um, they're they're identical twins but even I can tell the difference. He certainly can tell the difference. So even if Rachel and Leah looked very much alike, which we can be pretty sure they don't because of the descriptions we're given about them, 
Why does Jacob not recognise it? It could have been drink after a wedding celebration. It could have been darkness. It could have been that the bride was wearing a veil. We don't know. But that's not really the question here. The question is why does it happen in the first place? And the answer seems to be that poor, poor Leah is looked on by her father as having no chance of getting married, of having a husband. And so he tricks Jacob. He tricks Jacob somehow, creating a circumstance where Jacob doesn't recognise that he's lying with the wrong sister. Can you imagine how Leah felt the next morning? When morning came, we're told in chapter 29, verse 25, when morning came, there was Leah! There's even an exclamation mark next to this in in the NIV, which almost suggests that this is, oh my goodness, how horrible, there's Leah! It's like that scene in Shrek where, where, where a beautiful princess turns into an ogre. Jacob says to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel. Why have you deceived me? You can imagine, can't you? There's this this unrest, there's all this arguing, there's this shouting, there's toing and froing. And all the while, Leah's lying there. How must she have felt? Did she feel like being joyful always? Does she feel like praying continually? Does she feel like giving thanks in all circumstances? I doubt that very much. Jacob's been tricked. He's been deceived. He didn't know the law of the land. Laban replies to him, it's not our custom here to give, give the, young, the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we'll give you the younger one also in return for another seven years' work. Sometimes we read that and we think, oh, poor Jacob, he's got to work another seven years to get what he thought he was getting in the first place. But actually, poor Leah. Poor Leah. Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Jacob lay with Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah. Leah's now married to a husband that doesn't love her because of a father that didn't have any faith in her. What a miserable state. What an awful set of circumstances to be in. When the Lord saw Leah was not loved, he opened her womb. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Now Leah actually goes on to give birth to six sons and she has a pretty major role to play in the history of Israel because six tribes come from her sons. She's a significant person. I said earlier she's a minor character and she she sort of is from a point of view that we we don't stop and think about Leah very often. 
But she is a significant character in the history of Israel because God chooses her, God uses her misery. He uses the deceit and the treachery that, that brought Jacob to, them in the, to Laban in the first place and then again the deceit and the treachery that brings Leah to be Jacob's wife. She named her first son Reuben. She says, it's because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. I've given my husband a son. It's what what men want. He can carry on the family line. He's got an heir. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, gave birth to another son. She says, because the Lord heard that I'm not loved. So the first son didn't bring any love. Because the Lord heard that I'm not loved, he gave me this one too. She's yearning for love. She feels so unloved. Again she conceived, when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. She's saying, three sons, surely now, surely he's got to to look favourably upon me, surely he's got to love me, surely. She conceived again. She hadn't received any love from her husband. This is the fourth time, this is the fourth child that she's had. So this is fair to say it's probably over a what six, seven year period. She's received no love. She's always been second best to her, her younger daughter, the one that was wanted in the first place. She's always lived in that shadow that she wasn't good enough, that her father wanted to, to marry her off through deceit because he didn't feel that she'd ever be good enough for anyone. She's always had that, that horrible nagging feeling that she was second best, that she was worthless, that she was empty. How could anybody in those circumstances pray continually, be joyful always, give thanks in all circumstances? How could they maintain a relationship with God? How could they not feel that God had had abandoned them, had given up on them, had left them? Surely she could be forgiven for saying, God clearly does not want me and so I'm done with God. But instead, despite the rejection, despite being unloved, being unwanted, being unappreciated, when she gives birth to her fourth son, she doesn't mention her husband, she doesn't mention her father, she doesn't mention anything other than she says, this time I will praise the Lord. This time... I won't look around for adoration from man because it's not there. I will praise the Lord. She gives thanks, she gives thanks in all circumstances. The worst of circumstances. We'd say now, using modern language, that she was subject to all sorts of abuse emotional abuse, sexual abuse possibly, um, the, uh, the, 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 whole, the way the marriage was carried out, the, the public humiliation, the social abuse. This time, I will praise the Lord. So her faith in, in mankind has, has gone. 
She doesn't have faith in her husband. She knows she'd always be second best. And she is always second best. The story doesn't get any better for Leah. The life she lives doesn't really improve. We're, we're told that she gave birth to a fifth son. And she says, God has rewarded me for, for giving my maidservant to my husband. So she gives her, her maid to her husband to try and satisfy him. It's one of those Old Testament arrangements that we look at now and think, that sounds a bit odd. But it was a way that she tried to gain his favour. When the sixth son comes along, she says, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honour because I've borne him six sons. Other translations tend to use the word respect instead of honour, which respect is not love. You can respect someone without loving them. Jacob no doubt respected Leah. She's given him six sons. This is, this is a strong family. This is a, a good horde, if you like. But that word love disappears from what Leah hopes to get from her husband. If we jump on slightly, we see, you remember the conflict or the, the, treachery, the um, deceit between Jacob and his brother Esau. Eventually Jacob goes to try and put that right goes back to his homeland to see Esau and as they're travelling, he hasn't got an army with him, he's got his family with him, which by that point is the size of a small army. And uh, he hears that, ja- uh, that Esau is approaching with a force of 400 men and Jacob fears the worst. He has no idea whether he's going to be attacked but why else would you bring 400 men? In chapter 33... We're told how Jacob arranges the people with him, almost, almost in a sacrificial order. So at the front, to face these 400 men, at the front, he puts maidservants and their children. So the, the expendable ones, the servants. In the second line is Leah and her children because they're that bit more expendable and then at the back ready to flee at the first sign of trouble is Jacob and Rachel now it turns out that Esau is there to greet and to welcome and to um, reconcile with Jacob and there's a lovely scene where they do but even we can see we can see can't we that after all these years, after all these children, the relationship between Leah and her husband, between Jacob and his first wife, there is no love shown. So Leah lives this miserable life. And when I read that, the first time I read that, I thought, how, how, how could she live that? How could she, how could she praise God when that fourth child was born? How could she... How could her response be, this time I will praise the Lord? I don't know is the answer, but it was. That was her response. She didn't lose faith. She didn't give up. She didn't look at her circumstances and say, well, God's abandoned me. Instead, she gave thanks, despite her circumstances. She somehow takes joy from from her children. She somehow lives with 
what her father has done to her, with what her husband has treated, how her husband has treated her, with the fact that she's always living with this humiliation of being second best to her younger sister, that the nicest thing somebody can say about her when history records her appearance is that she had eyes. History is not flattering in the record it gives us of Leah. But actually, the example that she sets to us is staggering. The strength of faith, the endurance, what she went through and yet still she chose to praise God. I don't know what you're going through in your life. That's between you and God. But what I do know is that every one of us at different times in our lives struggle. We go through heartbreak. We go through tragedy. We go through loss, through suffering, through fear, through threats, through illness, through financial ruin. We go through circumstances which, quite frankly, we do not want to give thanks in. I think that it's important for us to remember that the Bible is full of examples of people who have been through exactly what we, what we go through. There is nothing new under the sun. That's, that includes creation, but that also includes human experience. There is nothing new under the sun. And so, let's make sure that when we go through those times, if we're going through them right now or if they're still to come, or if we've just come out of a time when we felt that our circumstances are not worth giving thanks for, where we felt joyless, where we felt like we're going to give up on prayer, give up on God. Let's just remember Leah and remember that there comes a point sometimes where you have to shun the world. Shun the world, give up on the world, say, fine, you treat me how you want to treat me, but God is my God and I will not abandon him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge that it lays before us. Father, you sent your son down to this earth who suffered in ways that we cannot imagine. So you know what it is to suffer. You know what it is to be abandoned, to be rejected, to be mocked, to be threatened, to be abused. You know what it is to feel unloved and deserted, to have friends turn away, to be treated unjustly. And yet you set us the ultimate example because despite all of that treatment, you still prayed for us on that cross. You still prayed for us as the nails were driven in, as the life was ebbing out of your body. You prayed for us in your suffering. And so, Father, we pray that you will give us the strength, the wisdom, the courage 
to make sure that in our suffering we still recognise you, we still turn to you, we still cling to you. Even when we have nothing else that we feel we can cling to in the world. Father, when we are at those times, please reach out to us and lift us up and hold us in your hand and keep us safe. We give thanks that you are a loving, loving Father. We give thanks that you will never abandon us or forsake us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.